Hello, this is Critical Care Commute with my friend Leon Baker. Yeah, and I'm of course joined by uh, Peter Brindley. This is our Christmas episode with Dr. Matt Morgan. Peter, who is Dr. Matt Morgan and why should North America care? Dr. Matt Morgan is one of the finest people on this planet. And, and to the happy Christmas, Joya Noel, Feliz Navidad, I would also like to add uh, Nadalik Klawen, uh for our Welsh guest today. Um, Matt is a full-time intensivist, but also an author of Critical, which I believe was a best-selling book, much beloved in our household, and is the reason for today's podcast, because not only are we going to talk about his work, we're going to talk about the sort of larger topic of doctors writing memoirs, doctors writing medical history, the fact that when I walked into my bookshop yesterday, there is an entire section now on medical memoirs, especially post-COVID. So Matt is the greatest person on this blue and green and in our part of the world, white planet to uh, talk about this topic. Matt, before we start, though, uh, what's the temperature where you are right now in Perth? So I'm in Western Australia, in Perth, and it's a different Christmas from what I'm used to. It's a balmy 31, 32 degrees at the minute. The pool cover is still on, but that'll be coming off pretty soon. So uh, yeah, that's a new experience for my family and i'm guessing where you guys are it's a bit different leon the temperature when i was around at your house today oh um when you were here it was minus 21 i believe and matt that was just inside the house he really has to pay for heating one of these (laughs) (laughs) why don't we dive straight into this matt uh for our listeners it is a christmas episode but we still want to give them take-home points and useful points tell us a bit about your journey what on earth are we clinicians doing writing books yeah it's a it's a good question it certainly never an intention certainly never a skill of mine growing up in fact in school I genuinely couldn't spell my own name and you know that's not hyperbole that was is true I remember my primary school teacher Mrs Jenkins uh, keeping me after class because I have a weird French middle name and I I genuinely couldn't spell it my writing was terrible uh, my spelling was terrible Um, but it was really after qualifying as a doctor and going through training in ICU in fact I was at a conference I was at a conference that I think Peter Brindley was at. And I remember talking at this conference about things that the audience knew about better than me. I was talking about academic stuff and critical care things. And what I'd forgotten about is not the professionals, but the, the public. You know, I, I went out that night. It was in Dublin. And over a pint of Guinness, which is how all good stories start, somebody said, what do you do? I, I said, I'm, I work as, as a doctor. What kind of doctor? Uh, intensive care and they said what's that and you know this was back in I think it was 2015 or 2016 way before the pandemic way before everybody knew more about ventilators than us and it just occurred to me you know I completely spent the last 10 years talking to people who knew things a lot better than me and forgot about the general public and it happened to be there was a rise in medical memoirs at that time so I wrote a blog about a memorable patient, um, and that kind of went down well. Got caught by an agent who, who was approached, and it went from there. And the rest is is history, I guess. Fantastic. So we promise our audience take home points. So I'm going to leverage a take home point, which is those stories are important. Those stories are 
needed by the public and, and well received by the public. It doesn't matter who you are, you can have a voice. So get your stories out there. To, just to go one step further, you know, I think as doctors, as healthcare providers, as nurses, physios, we are literally made of stories. I think if I chopped uh, Peter and Leon in half, you know, you would genuinely be made of stories. And those are the people who you remember that some, sometimes the people you need, um, you need some time not to forget, actually. But I think that's integral to the things we do as healthcare providers. We, we are made of stories. With, with respect, Matt, I think if you chopped me in half, you'd come across a lot of pie and gravy. But tell us about the journey you went on from writing to disciplining yourself to finding a publisher to getting it out there to not feeling like a a fraud and actually feeling like you had a genuine story. Tell us about that, Matt. I, I guess the first bit I was writing for myself and, uh, you know, I there was certain patients that I remember and certain patients that I did ICU because of. There was one in particular who was called Chris, who was a, a young teenager who sadly died of severe sepsis after going on a gap year to Africa. And he's one of those people that speaking to his family made me a want to do ICU B wanted to do some research and find out more about why he died effectively so he was naturally the kind of first person I wanted to write about and it was literally as simple as writing down with a blank screen and uh, you know trying to write some of the science and some of the humanity and for me growing up the books I loved were always the books that weaved science and story together um, not necessarily science and story but you know books by Malcolm Gladwell and others that brought everyday experience and weaved that into something more substantial than just that story so that's kind of what I tried to do um, plus I'm pretty interested in history and although we talk a lot about some of the history of medicine I didn't know any of the history really of the intensive care unit um, so I wanted to find the first ever intensive care patient. Uh, and in fact, that took me on a journey to track down uh, their family in Copenhagen, uh, who I eventually did. And the book starts with the story of a little girl called Vivi, who was a 12-year-old uh, girl who was ventilated in the Copenhagen uh, polio epidemic. So that was kind of the inception, I suppose. And it went as simple as I wrote uh, a blog, if you like, or, or a few chapters. I then wrote an outline of what I think a book should look like for ICU, going through different organ systems, the brain, the heart, the lungs, the soul. Uh, and completely through serendipity, I found an agent who happened to be looking for new science nonfiction writers. And that was through uh, a a friend of a friend of an acquaintance of a friend and it it worked out you know it was it was a huge part of luck uh, and a small part of skill and it was the right time right place with an explosion of medical memoirs happening uh, at that time really and i have a <clears throat> beloved and well-thumbed copy of critical your first book in front of me here and as you say you divided it up into the immune system the heart the soul sort of almost like we would divide up a traditional textbook. Tell us some of the other stories, some of the personal stories. You mentioned Chris. You mentioned uh, the first patient who ended up on a Copenhagen ventilator. Yeah, so every chapter has got between one and three stories in there. And one thing that was pretty important to me is I didn't want to make these 
anonymous stories. I didn't want to change the facts so that they mean nothing. So I decided pretty early on that I would contact anyone who's in it, talk to them, uh, get their explicit consent uh, or the assent from family members, and tell the story pretty much how it is. And that was, I think the publishers found that slightly odd, actually, and slightly nerve-wracking. They very much wanted to change loads of details. Um, But when I met with the patients, what they were really insistent on, interestingly, was nothing being changed, even sometimes as far as their name. You know, they said, no, you can absolutely use my story. Please tell the world about what happened, but please use my name. And, and that that was beautiful and quite scary at the same time. Um, some other patients in there, you know, these will be familiar patients to anyone listening who works in critical care. There's, uh, there's a judge who had 25 cardiac arrests and VT Storm after an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And it follows his journey through not only the medical side of things, you know, going to the cath lab and having stents and so on, but also his recovery from you know, having died, if you like, and rediscovering life. Um, so that is in there. There's a, a, a sad story of a young new father who had a devastating intracranial bleed, who subsequently went on uh, to give the gift of life and donate many many of his organs to allow others to live through a brainstem death criteria, death by neurological testing. And that was an important uh, message I wanted to get in the book about a public health message, really. Um, There's messages in there uh, about patients with weird and rare diseases that sometimes we forget about working in critical care that it's important to remember about. So it covers the bread and butter stuff as well as some of the more esoteric, really. In in your new book, you uh, approach animal science um, as as a means to to learn about human medicine and such. Now, other than I mean, there there are many examples, I guess, where we borrow from nature. I'm thinking of things like aspirin, digoxin, opiates, ACE inhibitors, etc. I'm suspecting that this book goes beyond that, beyond pharmacology that we can borrow. Um, help us help us understand a little bit about your fascination with with you know learning from from animal science. Yeah, so I, I wrote uh, Critical was published in 2019, way before uh, the pandemic, and that's very much a, a book about patient stories and science, uh, with a little bit of memoir about me and my life, kind of weaved together. Uh, it was always going to be a, a two book deal with the publishers, actually, which I was really grateful of, and it may give me space to think about what number two would be. And I've long been fascinated with how animals adapt to extreme environments. And of course, we do that every day in ICU. You know, we use technology to allow patients to survive extremes. But certain animals, that's not critical illness for them. That's their life. You know, uh, how animals survive in the frozen wilderness of Canada, uh, where you guys are at the minute, whether it's the marmot or or the whooping crane, how some animals survive in extreme amounts of hypoxia, like the ice fish who lives at the bottom of the Antarctic sea shelf. So I've kind of long been obsessed by that, and I was very grateful the publishers allowed me to indulge that slightly niche um, passion and, and write about this. If you want, and the truth about how this started, I've got the first paragraph of the book, which is not published yet, so this can be a a sneak preview, uh, and this will maybe give you a little taste about um, how that obsession came to be. Shall shall I 
Shall I do that? Shall I read I'm that? sorry, Matt. This is a world exclusive. Am I hearing this correctly? I think this this is a world exclusive. Drum roll, please. Take it away. <laughs> it all started when Barry choked on a hobnob. And for people listening, a hobnob is a, a British oat-based biscuit. It all started when Barry choked on a hobnob. He suffered a cardiac arrest after the oat biscuit went into his lungs instead of his stomach, and he ended up on my intensive care unit. I nearly came to a similar fate that morning. It was a rare, hot Welsh summer's day, and I had inhaled countless flies during my bike ride along the river to work. Had I ridden into a bee, I too may have been battling for my life. As we tried to save Barry's life, a flock of birds flew past the hospital window next to his bed. Why didn't those birds die, I thought. Although not known for their love of biscuits, birds continually inhale things that could block their lungs as they fly forwards. How do they survive, I wondered. And so my obsession with what animals can teach us about human medicine was born from a simple hobnob. So, you know, although that's slightly tongue-in-cheek, we... I was genuinely looking after somebody who'd aspirated, uh, not on a hobnob, actually. I did have to change some details for that. Um, and it made me think, why don't birds continuously uh, inhale things? Uh, and there's a good reason for that. And, and so, too, there's reasons that all different animals survive extremes, not just inhaling biscuits. Matt, that was absolutely marvellous. I was—I'll I'll be frank with you. I was going to try and hit you up for a free copy. I don't even mind paying for it now. That was extremely engaging. I'm—I'm I'm sitting here. I'm a huge lover of medical books, medical memoirs, medical history, medical physiology, popularised for the audience. In front of me here, I've got from James Maskelich from uh, Emergency Medicine in Toronto, Kevin Fong on the extremes of physiology, Rachel Clark, Your Life in My Hands, Matt Morgan Critical, David Knott, War Doctor, Seven Signs of Life from Ify Abbey, Admissions from Henry Marsh, and a certain chap called Adam Kay, who did quite well for himself in the UK, but is actually still somewhat unknown in North America. Are these books under your Christmas tree, bringing the festive season in? Are you a consumer or just a producer? Yeah, no, I've I've long been obsessed with books and reading, and similarly with medical books. Um, I've got a shelf behind me that you, probably about a third of those consists of many of the books you've mentioned from those authors, which 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 I love. I guess I started reading those early medical books from people like Oliver Sacks, the man who thought his wife was a hat, uh, as well as people like Henry Marsh that, that you mentioned. So that really started my journey into, uh, I guess, medical memoir, medical nonfiction through those aspects. I, I guess I, I quite like the ones which have science in there too. So I like the winding of human stories with science. Um, those are probably my preferred um, one, books that I started reading and still read. So yeah, I'm, I'm still an avid consumer as well as producer. As am I, the work of Rose George, the work of Sam Keynes. I guess in addition to just having a lovely Christmas chat, I would I would implore people and encourage people to make sense of the work that they do and the lives that they live. And, and to me, at least, this is one of the ways you do that. Put a brew on, have a cup of tea, sit back and think about the world in which you work. Yeah, and I guess, you know, there are also books which I might call uh, work-related books or medical-related books, which are perhaps not they wouldn't be found on that medical memoir shelf 
so one I've read recently related to this book, I guess, is a fabulous uh, biography called The Camel's Nose, Memoirs of a Curious Scientist. Uh, that's by Svit Nielsen, uh, who is a Norwegian, probably the first comparative physiology scientist, really. And that's a fascinating story about animal physiology and so on. Uh, on, the, on the shelf behind me, in fact, there's a big blue book uh, by Swit Nielsen called Animal Physiology. And I genuinely bought that textbook uh, during trying to revise my ICU exams. You know, I had <laughs> all of the pharmacology and anatomy ones. And, I, you know, I was just reading the animal one, actually, and it probably didn't help uh, my, my mark. Uh, and I guess there's some other slightly um, different ones as well. If Disney Ran Your Hospital is a book that I think about quite a lot, although I don't particularly subscribe to everything in there. It looks at, I guess, patients' experience of healthcare. And so, yeah, I think, you know, reading around those topics is a great way rather than just CPT, rather than just going to conferences, rather than just looking at the latest guidelines of making you a, a great and perhaps better doctor. Now, Sherlock Holmes was famously written about a doctor by a doctor, Conan Doyle, and his foil was obviously Dr. Watson. We've got Michelle Johnson now writing fiction down in Oz. What about that area? That's yet another genre. Yeah, I think I've been, in the past, I've been a bit of a philistine. I struggled with fiction for many, many years. I almost saw fiction you know, wrongly as, as kind of made up lies, if you like. <laughs> you know, why would you spend money on just reading something that's made up? Uh, and then I, I read a book called A Fine Balance by Rowan Mystery. And it all made sense after reading that, actually. It made sense that it transports you to worlds that you may not be able to go to yourself. It transports you into other people's lives completely. Uh, and so now, uh, yeah, I've, I've changed. I, I love uh, fiction books, including those by, by healthcare professionals. Uh, I, I guess two to mention, if you're looking for Christmas gifts, I've recently read Piranesi by Suzanne Clark is a very bizarre but engaging uh, book. It's hard to hard to describe, actually. And I've also recently started reading through all of the original fairy tales uh, from the Brothers Grimm. And it's amazing how different the stories you think you know, like Cinderella, uh, actually is in, in the original. So that's something I've been spending a bit of time doing. Um, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Dr. Christian Barnard, the the um, surgeon first credited for heart transplant in South Africa, he actually did dip into uh, fiction, and and it was a I, I read a few of his fiction books, and it was really a very nice sort of blend between you know making up a story and and having having the background and huge background of of being a, a surgeon like that. Excellent, Matt. I uh, I share your skepticism about fiction and i've disciplined myself to start reading it if i may share an anecdote a friend of mine took his kid to the bookshop because he desperately wanted him to stop reading engineering textbooks and books on nazis during the war and he said you see that whole wall son that is fiction and his son turned to him and said dad i think you mean lies the one area we haven't covered is the medical biography you know in front on my bookshelf i have famed Canadian author Michael Bliss's work on Osler, on Harvey Cushing. I have books in front of me on 
uh, some of the great surgeons from the U.S., wartime, and how that was as much a history as, of medicine as it was of mayhem. Any interest in dipping into that area, Matt? Yeah, in fact, there's a biography I've listened to uh, recently, which has really impacted me in, in good and bad ways, I guess. And it's a bit of medicine. We don't often, I don't know if, even if you call it medicine, but it's a bit of life. Actually, shouldn't call it life, perhaps. <laughs> it's a bit of the world we don't often think about, and that's death. So I, I've, I listened to a biography called Smoke Gets in Your Eyes by Caitlin Doherty, who is a mortician. And firstly, what an amazing title. Uh, you know, she works in a crematorium, and the title being Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. I think that's, that's a great title. But this looks at the flip side of things that, of course, we look after so many people who, who sadly die. And the end of that process often is a leaflet given to the family members saying, you know, here's the next steps. But actually, I knew so little about those next steps. Uh, and Caitlin Doherty talks about her life working as a mortician, how the industry itself may have a number of issues going on for, for better and worse, and what the future of, of death looks like. Um, there's one quote I really resonate with and remember. She says that, um, death used to happen in the home or the, the home was where the body was. Uh, and now that's, you know, changed into a relatively big industrial conglomerate, uh, in terms of the, this is a big industry. So yeah, that's, a, that's a book I'd highly recommend. Smoke gets in your eyes. I have read that. That is indeed an excellent book and it lives next to the work of Mary Roach, Mary Roach on my bookshelf. We wrote an incredible book called Stiff, not what you think it is, Matt. Uh, more a book about cadavers and the, the incredible uses. And, and Rose George has written about nine pints, the blood inside our body and, and the social history of it and the medical history. Um, you mentioned death and dying that. Atulga one day has been celebrated on this continent at least, but I was profoundly moved after reading the work of Catherine Mannix uh, with the end in mind, and I'd, I'd highly recommend it, especially to North Americans who may be unfamiliar with it. We have had a fantastic Christmas chat around the fire here, Matt. Everything but a mince pie. What else would you like our audience to know before they rush out and buy not only four or five copies of Critical? but uh, 12 or 13 copies of One Medicine. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, you know, I, I'd love uh, people's help and support in bringing One Medicine to an audio, a bigger audience. So that will be published in March 2023 is one thing to say. I guess the other thing to say, and I'm pretty early on this journey, is that I'm, I'm very interested in how writing is important for healthcare professionals, not just for books or articles, but for our everyday work, actually. Um, Peter and I write frequently in, in the BMJ around topics which inspire us, but also most of our writing happens in patients' notes to patients. And how can we get better at that uh, as a doctor, as a physician, as a nurse? And in terms of the things that you leave patients with, uh, you leave them with memories, you leave them with the way you've made them feel. The physical thing you often leave is your words. Uh, and I think that has probably not had enough attention through medical school, medical training, uh, and so on in, in recent times. So I'm a big proponent in ICU of writing to the patient. So even if it's uh, an end-of-life conversation, I'll often address those notes as 
I spoke with your family today and I told them how sick you were. I think you were sick enough, you may die, which is a which is a sentence used from Catherine Mannix, actually, which is a great way to phrase things. Um, so I, I've, I've made a little course for doctors who want to learn more about writing, which you can find online at uh, Doctor to Author. Uh, so that's available there. But more generally, I'm pretty interested in thinking more about this area uh, in terms of how we write as healthcare professionals. What a glorious conversation this has been. Leon, I think we owe these fine people some take-home points, and I'm going to jump in, if I may. Think about your stories. Think about the things you want to communicate. Think about the things you want to understand. I was taught many, many years ago that communication is the most important procedure performed in medicine, and I think this is another incredible illustration that that's true. Leon, your take-home points? Well, I'm still trying to figure out why birds don't choke when they fly. Um, I'm going to have to read this uh, this book once it's out. Um, but this has been an incredible chat. Um, you know, I can't really I – th- I think my take-home point is read more than just medicine, I think, ultimately. Um, and read from, from – you know, read from people that's been in the trenches – um, there's, there's a, you know, there's so much burnout and so on going on, and I think, I think it's, it's perhaps protective in a way to, to read about others' experiences, to read about patients or experiences that they, they may have had under incredibly stressful uh, circumstances. So that would be my single take-home point: is, is, is read more, and, and read outside of medicine for, you know, for, for those who work in medicine. Absolutely, for me, one of the greatest joys is receiving a book from somebody because you know how much it means to them, and it then grows within you and you pass it on to somebody else. Maybe with Christmas approaching and us unable to hug each other as much as we'd like to because of COVID and distance, maybe this is one way you pass a hug on to somebody by passing a beloved book rather than just a bottle of wine. Uh, Matt, you're a spectacular human being. Thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you both so much. And since I started with the start of the book, I guess I should copy another Welsh author, Dylan Thomas. And uh, we began at the beginning, so we shall end at the end. This is the last paragraph, actually. And it says, I often stand at that bed space in the intensive care unit where we saved Barry from choking on a biscuit. In his place are other patients with very different problems, yet there's always an animal to talk about, a species who can help us and who we can help in return. I used to think that I worked only with humans, but now I know I only work with animals. Thank you, guys. Merry Christmas, one and all. Merry Christmas in Afrikaans, Leon, if you could. Gesien de kaarsfeers. I hope you get over that cold soon. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>